Welcome back to the 89th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be talking about how taxation is theft. And of course you've probably heard that talking point before, but we're going to explore a little bit of why taxation isn't always morally justified, why the death tax is totally immoral, at least from the point of view of conservatives, and why the ever-growing gap in the wages of service workers is being forced by the ever-growing amount of software being used in these companies. And I think it's a very interesting angle, and I hadn't necessarily thought about it before. This is really Andrew Yang's nightmare come to life, and we may be seeing UBI here in the future. Who knows? But We'll also end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So which would you rather have? A $2 bill that duplicates every other day for the rest of your life, but when you pass away, you cannot leave it behind. You can't leave it to anybody any fund that you set up, trust fund for your kids, disappears. Or $2 million of a trust fund for each of your kids and any partner when you die. Which one of those would you rather have? It's a very interesting question. Basically, be a provider while you live and then leave them with nothing. Or you know, deal with what you have throughout your life, but leave behind something that will help sustain them and possibly allow them to have a good life. All right, let's jump in to our first article. This one comes from FEE Stories. Why taxes are harmful, a response to the woke salary man. So a little bit of context, the woke salary man is a news publication, or I believe a comic in this case, out of Singapore. And they put out something talking about why Taxation is good. Three arguments for taxation, essentially. And the author systematically goes through the article and tries to rebut each one. So let's start with the first one that they bring up. Quote, the first point the comic brings up is in favor of taxation is the fact that taxes fund public services. Quote, it may not always be immediately apparent, but we enjoy a lot of public services without a second thought of how they came to be. It says, the comic goes on to list a variety of services the government provides, such as properly paved roads, healthcare facilities, parks to enjoy, and public education, end quote. And of course, this is true. These public sector jobs that are provided, these public amenities that we get as citizens, you know, of course, they're funded by taxpayer dollars. And there are a lot of things that you may not even think about. I mean, technically, the electricity companies that provide our electricity, while they are private companies, they are controlled and subsidized by different state agencies to ensure that those electric costs aren't too high for the consumers. So there's a lot of ways that government, of course, is involved in our life. And there are a lot of things that we don't necessarily take a second look at and understand where government is involved. But when it comes to this taxation argument, the author is actually very diligent in breaking this one down. And I'll go straight to a quote from him. As 
Henry Hezlet reminds us in economics in one lesson, we need to keep in mind that the unseen costs of such services, namely the things this money might have been spent on if it hadn't been spent to fund public services, economic economists call this the foregone opportunities or opportunity cost. The fact is that every dollar spent on public services is a dollar that can't be spent on private services. So at best, this is just a one-for-one -one transfer. For every one million in public services we gain, we lose one million in private services. In reality, however, it's almost always worse than that because politicians, unlike private sector entrepreneurs, have no idea of knowing or no way of knowing which allocation of resources will be the most beneficial to consumers, end quote. And this is a very interesting, interesting argument here because at the end of the day, I would say that he jumps straight to the fact that oh, well, they're not necessarily efficient in allocating their resources, or at least they don't know what, how to best go about it. But I would go even further and say they can't ever be as efficient as a private company because at the end of the day, the private company is liable to its shareholders. It wants to make profits. So every endeavor that it pursues is with that goal in mind, of course. So is that the case for private sector? Is that the case for the government? Are they always worried about making money? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes they care about that, but at the end of the day, they are backed by the Bank of the United States of America. If they need more funding, in theory, they could just print more money. So why would they have to be efficient in producing any sort of public good? Now, of course, people argue, well, they don't want to inflate the currency wildly, so they won't just randomly spend money. But as we've seen over the last few years, very often the government is willing to just spend money and pull money out of nowhere in order to fund its goals without necessarily worrying about inflation as much as it should. Now, if that trend doesn't continue in the future and we have more responsible heralds who say, no, 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 we can't just print money, we can't just have all this excessive spending because it will devalue the U.S. dollar, then even then, even if that optimal conditioning happens, then you still have bureaucracies in place that take up time, that eat a lot of different costs and reduce the efficiency of how the government can go about creating these public services that a private company could be doing at a lower cost and possibly at a higher quality than the government. Now, then again, you do have to, I do at least admit with that, though, if a private company is creating a ro roadway, it is probably going to be a toll road. So, of course, you know, there is that you have to pay for this, but is that worth it? Is the paying the $2 for that toll road for a high-quality road that is well-maintained because the private company wants people to keep using it worth it versus paying a whole bunch of taxes that you don't necessarily see all the benefit for. You don't necessarily know if your tax dollars went directly to that road. I mean, in theory they did, but even then, if the government is inefficient and they're forced to just print money in order to make it possible to do those jobs, those public services that we love so much, then we're actually losing money the value of the dollars in your pocket is going down.
And that's where the author really does highlight that private industry can do the job better and to less cost, quote unquote, to the consumer. All right, so let's jump to the second argument presented, controlling behavior. The second argument the comic presents is in favor of taxes is that it can be used to encourage and discourage certain types of behavior. When it comes to encouraging socially desirable behavior, the comic gives some examples such as tax relief for parents, encouraging people to start families, and tax reductions for donating money to charity, encouraging philanthropy. Socially undesirable behavior can likewise be discouraged with extra taxes, such as taxes on tobacco and alcohol, to reduce the prevalence of smoking and drinking, end quote. And, you know, again, on the surface, this sounds okay, or at least for people that are willing to have the government tell them, hey, you, you can do whatever you want, but, but we're going to put some taxes on some things, we're going to provide some benefits in some locations, because we really want you to do this certain thing or that certain thing. And, of course, the government does have an interest in ensuring that it has a stable population because it wants to have a stable workforce. And also, it wants the next generation to be able to support the previous generation with programs such as Social Security. If the birth rate drops off dramatically and there are less people at the bottom of the population pyramid, they can't support the generations above them through the taxes that they provide. So, of course, a government wants to encourage certain types of behavior. It is in their best interest. Even if you take away the, oh, we want to keep our labor supply, purely from a tax-based incentive, they want to ensure that their tax base stays as large as it is. Otherwise, they're going to have to cut their spending to respond. So, this seems like a really, really nice, simple argument. And if you're a person who agrees that the government should be involved in this way, then there's no problem here. What the author points out, and what I think is a very good point, and I agree with, is that I don't necessarily think the government should be, at the end of the day, deciding what is best for its people. Now, it can try to decide what is best for itself, but then trying to cram that down on its population because, oh, we know what's best for you. We will be the guiding light. We will tell you how you should live your life. We're not going to force you to do it, but we're going to make it hard to live the way that you want to. That is very patronizing. That is implying that the individuals in their society do not have the free will, the knowledge available to them to make optimal or even maybe bad, but at least decisions that they want to make. It kind of implies, oh, no, no, you're our little kitties. We're going to protect you. We're going to keep you in the crib. We're going to make sure we give you the right bottle. No, 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 don't do that. I mean, if you want to, do it, but we're going to give you a little spank afterwards or we're going to charge you an extra $50 on your alcohol consumption habit. Now, to be clear, I think that, like I said, there are certain benefits to it. There are certain types of behavior that I don't necessarily love. I would not be unhappy if a whole bunch of people decided, yes, we're going to have a whole bunch of kids at this point so that we can grow the population of the United States, therefore exert more market power across the world. I would not be upset if that was a cultural change. But when it is a forced implemented change or encouraged through the government, rather than having the society and the culture cultivate that mentality... That's where I have an issue. 
We are a free, independent people. We can think for ourselves. And in theory, we can recognize what's good for us and our community and the nation without the government always stepping in. Now, of course, sometimes the government has more information than the average consumer, but I think that is a normal trend. And if anything, the government should publish that information, provide that information, and ensure that consumers can make educated decisions without actively trying to incentivize or disincentivize. Now, there, of course, if we had an in-depth conversation, I'm sure there are places where I would allow for some nuance. It's not a full blanket statement. But in general, I would like to see the government stop this sort of incentivization, decentivization, especially when it comes to private industry with subsidization and taxation. Because at the end of the day, private industry should feel the need to innovate on its own without the government coming in and saying, you have to innovate this way, or you should innovate in order to meet our tax emission standards. All right. So there is another part to this one, but I do want to move on past it. Basically, it talks about how the government is using tax dollars to help the poor. And the author says, well, actually, the reason that some of these people are still poor is because of the government. It's not a very nuanced argument, and I don't think it really adds much. The first two points are much more interesting to me. So I think we're going to jump to our second article from Newsmax. Death taxes immoral and don't work. And, I mean, if you can't tell their bias, where they're coming from, Newsmax does not like this death tax, not at all. So let's start by setting the stage. Quote, in seven blue states, including California, Illinois, and New York, new wealth taxes and higher income tax rates on people such as Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Taylor Swift have been proposed by liberal lawmakers. Biden said billionaires aren't paying their fair share and shouldn't be paying a lower tax rate than a firefighter. That's a ridiculous claim. The richest 1% of Americans pay 42% of the income taxes in America. That's nearly an all-time record high. End quote. And the reason I wanted to start with this is, oh, you see the perspective of where these blue states are coming from. They're trying to tax the rich. You've heard this saying a lot. And then I also wanted to highlight the fact that the top 1% pays 42% of the income tax in America. Now, the, always the common argument is they're not paying their fair share. They are not paying what they should be paying. And as a percentage of their income, they are paying less than the average American. There is no doubt. But when it comes to the total tax burden that they are taking on of the population, it is almost, well, it's not almost half, it's 42%. So if you think about it that way, even though it is not equal to the amount or percentage of the income that other people are paying, they are taking on a large amount of the tax burden in the United States. And, you know, fair share. That's a very tricky, tricky game to play. Because if you would ask these millionaires and billionaires, they would say, yeah, we're paying a fair share. We're taking on almost half of the U.S. tax burden when we're paying our taxes. And then when you ask people that are a little bit disadvantaged, they say, well, 50% of my income has to go to taxes. That is drastically overblown. But for example's sake, 
50% of my income is going to taxes. Why isn't 50% of their income going to taxes? Well, they're making more money. They have a lot more money to throw around. And also, don't forget that what Newsmax goes on to mention here is when you have that many resources, you are able to contact the best tax attorneys and accountants and find loopholes and find ways to store away a little bit of money that will be tax-free. And is that unfair? Is having the means to actually keep your wealth unfair? It's a really controversial question. I would say no, because at the end of the day, if you have the ability to save your money, say you want to keep a little bit of money out of the stock market and you want a asset that is probably going to go up in value or at least stay stable in the good old days, that would have been gold. And a lot of people didn't have enough money to buy an entire bar of gold, but they could buy, you know, little fractional shares here or there. But that means that at the end of the day, they could be affected more by the price change of gold because they don't have an entire gold bar. They don't have the good, solid, large amount that is probably going to stay more stable than the little rings and coins that you would have to take to a pawn shop or a broker. They're going to charge you less, and or sorry, I'm good, they're going to give you less because at the end of the day, you have less bargaining power. If you have one ounce of gold and they need at least 20, then they're going to be less likely to give you the best rate. Whereas if you come in with a 32-ounce bar of gold, then they're going to say, okay, well, I, I need that 20 and I want a little bit more. And they, one person can satisfy my needs. Uh, instead of jipping people here left and right to make a little bit of profit, I'm going to give this person with the large sum a good deal. Now, that may be a failed analogy because obviously that doesn't correlate to the modern world as much. But my point is, with a lot of money comes a lot of market power. And in a world of a free market, you have to understand that there are certain incentives in place. And these people, they want to keep their money, and they have the ability to do so. So is that unfair? That, that's the question that we're getting at. Is it unfair for them to retain some of their earnings when a lot of other people don't necessarily get to do so? And, you know, I think it's a tricky, tricky game. But what I think we could all agree on is that when you die, more than half of your estate should not be taken by the federal government. Now, of course, this applies to a certain income bracket, but it's anybody above $12 million. To be honest, in modern terms, with the inflation the way that it is, $12 million is not necessarily a lot. Most people, if they save properly, if they invest properly could have $12 million by the time they pass away if they make it to the ripe old age of 85. And yet, that is the threshold for the death tax. Quote, the estate tax was originally proposed by Karl Marx and was and still touted as a Robin Hood plan to redistribute the great hordes of wealth amassed by the Rockefellers, the Fords, and the Carnegies to lower-income Americans. But guess what? It has never come close to working. Over the past 50 years, it has never accounted for more than 3% of the total federal revenues. Amazingly, in 2020, the last year for which we have complete inaccurate IRS data, the estate tax raised $17.6 billion out of the $3.5 trillion in federal revenue. End quote. 
So what's the author doing here? They're pointing out that it is a drop in the bucket. It is not necessarily doing what it is proposed to do. It was installed in a time where you had the robber barons who weren't necessarily able to stow some of their money away. Now, of course, they did. They put them into the physical assets of their company and then allowed their children to take over their company. So that's one way of protecting the value that they had or the money that they had at the time. But you can see that it's not been as effective as the U.S. government would want it to be. Just a quick note, I do think it's very tricky of this author to mention who initially proposed the state tax, which is Karl Marx. Because when you first read it, you're like, oh, if you don't like communism, Karl Marx, oh, we got to step away. It's one of his bad ideas. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter who proposed it. It matters what was proposed. And if it was some other random person, maybe it was a capitalist who rationalized it, then people would have a very different point of view if you said his name at the beginning. He's kind of starting from a biased point of view and trying to elicit a certain emotion for you when you listen to the rest of that quote. And that's why I left it in there, because it's a tricky game that authors and journalists play. And I just want to make sure that when I can, I point those things out. But that doesn't lessen the point that it's not necessarily as effective as the government would want it to be. And I think at the end of the day, there is this sense that the author is trying to bring about that the willingness or the want to take away the value from a really wealthy person, the assets that they have gone throughout their life, the money that they have accumulated, the need or want to take that away and redistribute it. There are two bases for it. There's one, you have a very equality-based stance, or I guess more accurately in nowadays terms, you would say an equity-based stance in that you believe there is some sort of discrepancy, so you want to take from the rich and spread it across the bottom income levels. Or, as the author proposes, it's greed. You want what somebody else has, or people that want to do this want what somebody else has. They want that wealth, and they feel envy that somebody else has it. And in order to be just, and in order to ensure that that person doesn't just get to have their money, we take it from them and we redistribute it to people who need it. And I think that is the moral underpinning of why this Newsmax article is saying this is outrageous. This is why the death tax is immoral. End of quote. And I think there is an argument to that. The fact that people can be envious and point the gun at the larger, more wealthy, well-endowed Americans and say, give us your money is a very dangerous mentality because at the end of the day, is it actually encouraging people to reach those heights? Will people want to become a Jeff Bezos if half of their wealth is taken away from them during their lifetime and another half is taken from their children? And I know, I did mention that they have ways around this and they have access to some of the best accountants and tax lawyers and so on and so forth. But if we are actively discouraging becoming wealthy because they will not be able to retain those earnings, then will people ever want to prosper to those levels? I would say probably not.
But then again, some would argue that we don't want them to prosper to that levels. We want them to get to a certain level and then give back to everybody else below them and help them get up the ladder rather than how they would argue it, pull up the ladder behind them. All right, that's enough talk about this one. Sorry I went on a few different tirades there, but I feel like there were a lot of nuances to that discussion that needed to be talked about. All right, so let's jump to our last article from the American Institute for Economic Research. Minimum wage hurt hurts who it claims to help. So I would love to spend an hour just talking about the fact that the minimum wage doesn't always work that it, the way that it should, so on and so forth. But the author takes a very specific point of view here. So I'll give him his fair due, and I will start off with a quote. Quote, in 2011, Mark Anderson famously said, software eats the world. His claim was that the problem is even worse than it looks because many workers in existing industries will be stranded on the wrong side of software-based distribution and may never be able to work in their field again. So once you walk up to the fast food counter and read some menu boards from the menu out loud, giant burger, enormous fries, a vat of drink, a combo meal, the person behind the counter then looked for the corresponding printed words on the cash register. Unsurprisingly, software, software ate this world. All you have to do is turn the cash register around. You can press those buttons yourself on a kiosk touchscreen. You can enter the payment yourself and get your own receipt because software is recording, charging, and transmitting your order to more software on the back line of the restaurant, end quote. And of course, this does make sense that software has started to take over. It's cheaper. You don't have to pay the software, or in theory, you don't have to pay the software for an hourly rate. You pay a one-time thing for the software, a few updates, optimizations here or there, adding new menu items, but that can be a wide software release, so you're paying one or two software engineers, and then you're paying somebody to come fix the kiosk. All probably cheaper than having one person behind the counter and still having to send out a person to fix the cash register every once in a while when it malfunctions. So, of course, this is a process that is happening ever so slowly. But the author is trying to get at the fact that this is just a natural progression, and if there was a minimum wage installed, it would actually hurt the workers that are losing their opportunities and jobs to these software packages. So let's jump to a very long quote, so please do stick with me, but I, I think it's worth explaining all of his thinking here. Quote, even if it works, it does not reduce employment at all. There are still many dimensions on which a minimum wage makes work uncomfortable for the less well-off because of competition among other margins. The best interpretation one can attach to minimum wages effects in the period before software started eating the world was that increase in unemployment was less than you might expect. But it still caused reduced employment or reduced hours much of the time and for any large increase. The reduction in the amount of work, especially hours for those who are still employed, has been much more pronounced in recent years. This is particularly true in areas such as Seattle, where the bump in hourly pay wages was large enough to create a living wage. Unsurprisingly, the effects are, one, 
raise wages for those who still have jobs. The law requires it. And two, cut the number of jobs and number of hours worked. The law of economics requires that. Even if there were a large positive effect on wages and no effect on unemployment, the increased prices for products and services produced by minimum wage workers would significantly harm the less well-off out of the portion to the assumed benefit, which is dubious in the first place, end quote. And I know there's a lot to absorb there, but I can break it down into two categories, one that hurts the workers and one that hurts the everyday customer. If you have a new Walmart in your town and they're starting to pay $13 wages, you're going to have a lot of people go into that Walmart. So we're going to talk consumer first, then we'll go to the service worker and explain how it hurts them. Because he does lay it out there, but you know it could be explained better. But for the average consumer, a new Walmart comes into town. They're paying $13 per hour. And then people start flocking to the Walmart. They get jobs there. The median wage of the workers in the town goes up by $2. Well, what happens when the market realizes that there's an untapped potential? Now everybody has two more dollars. They have a little bit more money to spend. Therefore, the Walmart, the other companies around through time realize, oh, we can charge a little bit more. People have a little bit more disposable income. We could charge 50 cents extra for this, 50 cents extra for that. And eventually, when this sort of thing happens, the standard of living, the cost of everything around in that community goes up. And then people complain they don't have enough money to buy things anymore. Some things are out of their reach. So Walmart raises raises the wages again. And guess what happens? Slowly but surely, the market catches up, realizing that there's unrealized potential there, that there's extra surplus cash that people are willing to spend, and then prices go up again. And then over time, this does indeed become disadvantaged for people who aren't getting those good jobs from Walmart, who may be working at the mom-and-pop shop who can only afford to pay $9 an hour. So you see how this is not necessarily beneficial for the less well-off. And then the first talking, the first argument talking about the service workers, if you have a whole bunch of software that is starting to do their jobs and you demand pay increases, what the author points out is at the end of the day, we're going to increase the wages of the people that stay, that don't get fired, and they're going to get less hours. So it's effectively the same wage rate. And then also you have to do the calculation if they are to get more hours or just the same amount of hours but more money, eventually having them constantly getting pay raises won't be worth replacing them with software. And that is what the author is getting at. And that is why just implementing a minimum wage does not necessarily solve all of these issues of people being forced out of the workplace by electronic software. And you really have to step back and understand that at the end of the day, just because you believe that it is more fair to give somebody a minimum wage doesn't mean it's not going to have adverse effects. And that's what the author's getting at. Now, does he have any policy solutions? No. To be honest, I haven't thought it through well enough to come up with one that truly, truly works. And I think people will probably jump to UBI, universal basic income. But then the same problem happens that I was talking about earlier. The market realizes that now the, the people of the population, they have an extra $1,000 given to them by the government so we can charge a little bit more. And then that UBI becomes 
well, you know, now that, that everything's a little bit more expensive, we'll give you $1,250 a month. And it just slowly goes up and up and up and up as inflation continues to grow. But, you know, Andrew Yang, smart man. Maybe there's something I don't understand from most of the time I've listened to what he was saying. All right. With all that said, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Boing Boing. Yeah, I know. Another cute website name. Adorable barn cat snuggles with waffles of the sheep. So have you ever imagined sleeping in the uncut wool of a sheep? Now, I'm not saying I necessarily have, but there is one barn cat who got to experience this beautiful, beautiful uncut fur of a sheep. Quote, if you need something to brighten up your day, here's a video of an adorable barn cat snuggling with waffles, the sheep, end quote. But it wasn't, just remember, it wasn't a one-way deal either. Quote, the kitty even gives waffles a little massage. I love their sweet friendship. Waffles looks so soft and friendly. I wish I could take a nap with him, end quote. And apparently this woman did think that she should or could take a nap in his fur. Well, if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos from this article or read any of the other articles from today, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Podvine, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, where you can download it and listen on the go. And there's the Twitter handle down there at your daily flip, where you can find the link to the YouTube videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.